morning, and happy Mother's Day. I know that sometimes Mother's Day, like Father's Day, can be a difficult day, but I pray that this day would be a great day for all of our mothers, and uh, I think that this message that I'm bringing this morning is uh, not a traditional Mother's Day message, so to speak, but it is a fun message. This is a message that will challenge us, but it also will bring us great joy and see how Christ really works in our lives. So I am grateful you're here. For those of you who are new, my name is Scott Johnson. I'm one of the, the leaders here at Calvary. And so if you're new, we're, we're grateful that you're here this morning, and I hope it goes well so that you'll come back. I want to start out this morning with a story about William Carey. If you are at all familiar with missions, you will know the name William Carey. William Carey was a Englishman who was a missionary. Well, he was born in 1761, and he lived until 1834. He was a well-known missionary in India. He was converted while he was working as a blacksmith, as, a, as an apprentice to the blacksmith as a teenager, and then he was baptized in 1783. After that, he pastored a small village church in Malton, Northamptonshire, but because the church was unable to finance his ministry, he also worked as a teacher as well as a shoe cobbler to help him make some money. And although Carey was mostly uneducated, he was a voracious reader who became very interested in literature about foreign lands, and he especially enjoyed reading Captain James Cook's journals about his travels. The curiosity about other lands slowly uh, became a spiritual concern for salvation for foreign peoples in his life, became a passion of his. Carey increasingly mentioned unevangelized nations in his sermons, and he wept when he discussed those with little access to the gospel. He had a true heart for the lost. Carey had come to believe that the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, was a binding command on every generation of Christians. John Collett Ryland, the father of a John Ryland Jr., publicly rebuked Carey at a meeting, calling him a miserable enthusiast. Imagine that, a miserable enthusiast because he had a heart for the lost. Who's lost? In 1793, William Carey, his wife Dorothy, and their son Felix arrived in the British colony of India. John Thomas, a Baptist physician who had already been working with the East India Company, was also there, as well as bringing along with him his wife and daughter. Dorothy's sister Kitty also accompanied the party. And they faced considerable hardship in their ministry. The East India Company was opposed to mission work. So the, the missionaries had to secretly sail to India on a Dutch ship. And once they arrived, Carey and Thomas became managers of indigo factories to support their families. But Thomas squandered all of the missionaries' funds. And within a few short years, Carey's young son Peter died. Kitty left the mission to marry a British soldier. And Dorothy began to show signs of mental illness, a condition that would take her life in 1807. Yet Carey persisted through these challenges. In 1800, 
Carey relocated to the Danish colony of uh, Serampore, where he remained until his death in 1834. There he joined two other missionaries, a man named Joshua Marsham, Marshman, a gifted preacher, William Ward, a printer. Now the legacy of Carey is interesting because he and his colleagues served as role models for the holistic work of missions. And in 1800, Carey, now 1800, it's like seven years after he was there, baptized his first convert, Krishna Paul, who soon became an evangelist. And despite these early years of minimal fruit in terms of conversions, by 1821, Carey and his associates had baptized 1,407 people. From one to 1,407 people. I think some of us would give up after seven years. It's a good thing Carrie did not. Marshman proved to be the most gifted evangelist and apologist on the team. And again, if you're familiar with missions, you know that William Carey continues to be revered as a missionary in missions history. He is an important figure in the movement of God's work. And he is an example to us for what this passage is going to tell us this morning. Because William Carey had an encounter with the risen Christ that changed his life forever. Theologian Bruce Milne says this, he says, an encounter with the living Christ is where faith is born. The church of the living Christ was where faith grows and it matures. A mature Christian experience will develop from loving Christ in and of himself in an immediate one-to-one -one relationship to loving him no less personally or deeply, mind you, in the fellowship of his own, his community, his church. You see, the church is the gathering, the ecclesia, the called out ones. That's who we are. We are the called out ones, the gathering of God's people, called out by him, who hear the voice of their good shepherd and obey his voice for the mission focus that Jesus has given them to go to proclaim the gospel, to bring hope into the world that has none, to call for people to repeat, to repent, not repeat their sins, to repent of their sins, can't read my own writing, and turn to Jesus and call him Lord and Savior. And today we're going to see four, well, we're going to see two main points, and then we're going to see uh, the last point is how do we apply this to our lives. And the first point that we're going to see is this. How an encounter with the risen Jesus turns fear into peace. And the second is how Jesus' call for our obedience to the mission that Jesus has given us changes our lives. And the third thing, the application process is, this is going to be a challenge to each of us, including myself, for us to open our minds and our hearts to seek Jesus and to find our place in his beautiful mission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for uh, William Carey. I pray, God, that this message this morning would be a message that would bring you glory, 
Lord, that each of us would be challenged to hear what it is that you have to say to us and that we would apply it to our lives, Lord, that we would seek out what you want from us. We praise you and thank you for this, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Our passage this morning is, is John 20, verses 19 through 23. So if you have your Bibles, there should be one in front of you in the pews. John 20, verses 19 through 23. Starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And while he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We see right away that, that there is a sense of fear in the disciples. We have to remember that this is still Sunday, Easter Sunday. Last week we looked ahead a week, but this is Easter Sunday. This is right after Mary Magdalene had had her encounter in the garden with Jesus. And we look in verse 19, the disciples are now, they're locked in a room in fear. Now this word for fear can also mean dread or terror. The disciples were in terror behind these locked doors. From what do they dread to appear to them? Well, the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders. Those who had just yelled, crucify him, and watched Jesus die on the cross three days earlier. They were afraid that they would be found out, that they were followers of Jesus and would be captured and killed just like Jesus. And keep in mind at this point, they don't believe that Jesus is alive. Now, fear is not always an incorrect response. Sometimes fear is good and a rational response. It can cause us to run at the appropriate time to escape danger. I remember when I was 20, my roommate and I were in a fast food restaurant in Denver and while we were there, a man robbed the restaurant. And I looked up, and I was looking at the wrong end of a very large gun. And I assure you that I was afraid. My feet were glued to the ground. I was really scared. I think I might have had to change my underwear. It was really frightening. And I can tell you that all of us would have been, at least most of us, some of, some of you probably wouldn't, but I wasn't packing I didn't have a gun with me, so I had no response. Fear was my response. In this case, though, the fear of the disciples were feeling was based on a belief that, that they were left alone against an enemy that will seek them out and kill them at best and torture them at worst. They believed that Jesus was dead. They may have heard from Mary that he was alive, but at this point there is no indication that they truly believe what she said. It is also worth noting, again, that Thomas wasn't there. As Matt taught last week, he showed up later. And then at the end of verse 19, an amazing thing happened. 
the risen Christ entered the room. And how he enters the room is a mystery. Remember, Jesus has a human body. He still has one in heaven, and he always will. So it's possible that he could have passed miraculously through the door, or just appeared, or he could have somehow opened the door, but it doesn't really make any difference. The point of it is, he's there. He is there now. And the disciples see the res resurrected Savior and Lord Jesus Christ for the very first time. Imagine, imagine what that would have been like to be there at that time. And as Milne pointed out that we looked at earlier, it takes an encounter with the risen Christ for our faith to begin. The disciples' lives will never be the same again. They are about to be changed into a powerful group of kingdom workers. Transformed from a company of people cowering in a locked room, hiding in fear, they are about to go and unlock the doors and confront those same leaders they are now in fear of and change the world. When Jesus comes, he brings a greeting of peace, a shalom, when he enters the room. He is bringing the traditional Jewish greeting, Shalom Alakam, which means literally, peace upon you. Literally, just days before, in John 14, 1, Jesus said these words to comfort his disciples as he told them he was going to leave them for a little while. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then, in verses 27 and 29, he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you, will, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. And here it is. Jesus, just as he said, is here. Because you know what? God never lies. God never lies. Then Jesus shows his scars, just as he did to Thomas. The difference is, though, that the disciples didn't ask Jesus to show them his scars or demand to see them so they would believe, but Jesus showed it to them so they would see that it truly was him. And after seeing that Jesus was risen, they are filled with joy and are glad. They are rejoicing. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Can you imagine the joy that they had in their life at that time? So I ask you, have you encountered the risen Christ in your own life? Have you ever encountered his peace? If you aren't experiencing peace in your life, maybe you haven't encountered the risen Jesus in your life. Maybe you haven't really placed your life into his glorious, pierced hands. Because based on what John is telling us here, when you do believe in him, you are changed from fearful and trembling to being filled with delight and joy. 
from terror and dread to rejoicing and gladness. There is a transformation in our countenance to the very core of who we are, from terrifying and doubting sinner to victorious and delighted saint. You cannot argue that point with me because it says so right here in Scripture. So I ask you, what would you rather have in your life? Dread, terror, fear, or peace? Peace from the risen Christ. I tell you, if you are living in fear and in terror, you need to look at yourself and place your full faith and trust in the one true Savior, the risen Christ Jesus, our Lord. So then you might ask, well, how can we encounter the risen Christ? How can we encounter the risen Jesus? We have never seen him, and this is true. But as we said earlier, in God, what God says in Titus 1-2, what Paul says about God in Titus 1-2, he says this, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Do you see that? Which God who never lies. This is a foundational truth in our faith, one that sometimes we overlook. I'm telling you, we have to come to the place in our life as Christians where we understand that God never lies. And if we come to that place where God never lies in our life, and we read the Bible, and we read his word, and we see his promises, you and I will never be the same. We will know that God never lies. And when we read the Bible, when he says that I hear your prayers and I will answer them, we will know that he does. When he tells us that you need not fear, I bring peace, we can trust that he does bring us peace, even when life becomes very difficult. Jesus prayed to his father in, in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17, 17. He said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. God's word is truth. And because we know God's word is truth, we can trust the promises of God. 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So then I say, give your life to him and live for him. Be born again into Jesus' perfect love that he demonstrated by giving himself on the cross for us. This is what drives out fear and turns it into peace, being with you. As John says in 1 John 4, 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And then once again in 1 John 3, 2 through 3, this is, this is a promise. This is a promise from a God who does not lie. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You see, one day you and I will see the risen Christ. And it is something that we should look forward to. And we can have peace until then because that is a promise of a God who does not lie.
And one day we will be made like him. We will be made in the glorious new body that we all have. And man, I really hope it looks a lot better than this one, I can tell you that. We must understand that Jesus is not a liar. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That there is truth in his resurrection. There is hope in his new life. And that brings that life to you. So do not live in fear. Live in his peace. Live in the comfort of his arms. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus. But then the question might be, well, what's next? What happens after I give my life to him? What happens next? What do I do with this? Well, that's a great question, and I'm really glad that all of you asked that question. <laughs> because these next three verses actually are going to help us answer that question. As we look at verses 21 through 23, just as Jesus was sent by his Father, we're going to see that Jesus sends out his disciples in peace by the power of the Spirit. Starting in verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. See, Jesus, again, starting in verse 21, brings peace again. This time to keep them from fear that they are going to be sent out on a mission. The same mission that Jesus was sent out on by his Father into the world. Milne points out that there's four important messages in this mission that the disciples are being sent out on. And the first one is, is the importance of the mission. This is incredibly important. These four points are incredibly important. The first one, again, the importance of the mission. Jesus is the sent out one, sent from his Father to come and save his people from their sins, to be the light of the world and to make God known. He can never be unsent. And now that he has risen and will be returning to his Father, it is now the disciples who will carry this important mission to reach the ends of the earth with the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Our God is a missional God. He is a missional God, and he wants everyone to come to repentance. He loves people to repent and come to him. The second thing is the character of the mission. In other words, what is the nature? What is the scope of this mission? What is the message? Well, the message is the same message that Jesus brought from the Father. It is the same mission Jesus has, and now he's imparting this mission to his disciples and then to us. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.2, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, in what, <coughs> excuse me, in what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We are to bring the things that we have been taught about Christ in his gospel that we have learned from the scriptures and teach them to others so that they can teach them to others also. This is how the church continues 
It's how it continues from all generations. One generation is taught, then they teach the next generation, who teaches the next generation, and so on and so on. And will do so until Christ returns. And Jesus said, as Matthew Carey learned in the Great Commission, Jesus said, he came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This message that brings hope and forgiveness, it brings peace and salvation, we are called to make disciples who make disciples, the same as Jesus did when he called the twelve. And the third point is the cost of the mission, the cost of the mission. To follow Jesus and partner with him was costly to the disciples. They left family and friends. They left careers. Ultimately, for each of them, except for John, it cost them their lives in a very violent and unpleasant way. It requires self-sacrifice to set aside their own dreams and plans for Christ's mission, which is greater than any dream or plan we could come up with. But it is costly. John 12, 26, Jesus told his disciples, whoever serves me must follow me. The cost of following Jesus is heavy. The resources of the mission, this is the fourth and final point. Jesus is our greatest resource in this mission because Jesus promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. And Jesus is the one who's responsible for sending the disciples. In John 17, 8, he prays that just as he was sent into the world, he is sending them into the world. But now without any help. As we look at verse 22, Jesus will be sending them with the Helper, the Holy Spirit. But these are the four things about this mission for us to understand so that we can go forward with this. And the first one is the importance of the mission. The second is the scope of the mission. The third is the cost of the mission. And fourth, the resources that are given to complete the mission. And as we look at verse 22, when Jesus says that he breathes the Holy Spirit on them, let us understand that this is not the same as the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 during Pentecost. This is, as one scholar puts it, the conception of the church, where Pentecost is the birth of the church. Calvin says that this is the sprinkling of the, of the Spirit, not the saturation of the Spirit in Acts 2. And most scholars see this as a symbolic event of what is to come. And we can see this because we know that when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, there is a transformation in your life. We are different. Our behavior changes. Our thoughts change. How we view God changes. How we view people changes. We are no longer fearful. We have the peace that only Christ and the Spirit can give. We walk in the newness of life. And we become more like Christ day by day. As we saw last week, in the Matt, uh, as Matt talked about Thomas, we see that the disciples, a week later, even after Jesus breathed the Spirit on them, they were still locked in the room in fear. 
They are not living out the commission that Jesus had given them. They still do not have the full power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 21, we see that they are still fishing for fish and not people. So let's contrast that with Acts 2. If we look at Acts 2, if you have your Bible and you flip over to Acts chapter 2, I'll give you an overview of the beginning part of it before we read a few verses. Verses 1 through 13 explains the coming of the Holy Spirit and how he came. And then in verse 14, Peter stands up and he begins to preach probably the greatest sermon in history outside of the Sermon on the Mount. In verses 17 through 21, he quotes from the book of Joel to explain what is happening. Remember that this is Peter, a fisherman, a bumbling man who couldn't get out of his own way half the time. Then let's read these words of Peter, this now transformed fisherman, into a now powerful preacher of God's word in verses 22 and 23 of Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, these are not words of a bumbling fisherman. This is not words of a man who is cowering in fear behind a locked door. These are powerful words of a preacher filled, saturated with the spirit of the living God, proclaiming the saving nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, confronting the very men that he was just a few weeks earlier cowering from in that locked room. Because this is what a transformed life looks like. This is what an encounter with the risen Jesus does in a person's life. And that is why, as Calvin said, that when Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit in verse 23, it was a sprinkling, not the saturation we see in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So what does Jesus mean in verse 23 about forgiving sins versus choosing not to forgive sins? Is that, what he's, is, that what it really, is that what he really means? That the disciples have the ability to forgive sin or choose not to forgive someone's sin? He says in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What Jesus is telling them what he's telling the disciples is to go and preach and teach the gospel of Jesus. It is the message of Jesus' death and the power of his resurrection that brings conviction, that leads to repentance and forgiveness of sin. Then when a person calls on Jesus and believes in him and comes to him to repent of their sins, they will receive forgiveness. As Jesus taught in Mark 2, only God can forgive sin when he heals the paralytic and forgives his sin. Mark 2.7 says this, that some of the scribes were taking offense to what it was that Jesus was doing. And they say this, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. So it is the gospel itself that brings forgiveness. 
It is the response of those who hear that that determines if their lives are forgiven or not. People who live in their transgressions in fear are ones who have not heard and responded. Our message, our mission is to bring this message of hope to those who have no hope. Those who live without faith, without the peace that is found in a, res, in a relationship with Jesus. Well, you might be thinking, well, gee, that sounds great, but how does this really apply to me? Today, I just live here in little old La Junta. What can I take away from this message? What can I possibly do? And that is our third point, our application point today. And I see three major things that we can take away from today's message. One, without Christ, you live in fear and in terror. Having Christ in your life brings peace. And even in difficult times, even in the most difficult times, he brings peace. Christians live in the eye of the hurricane. When it is surrounding us and swirling and all chaos is going around us, because we have the peace of Christ, we can sit in the eye of the hurricane and be in control. Not because we're in control, but because we know Christ is in control. Without Christ, you will dread life. In Christ, you will live in peace. Knowing him, you, that ultimately you will be with him in heaven. In a place known as God is there. The last verse in the book of Ezekiel. If you aren't sure you are a Christian, we need to have a chat. We need to have a talk after service. Because I don't want anyone to walk out of here today without knowing that they haven't encountered the risen Christ and accepted him as their Savior. The second point is that all Christians, including all of us here today, are sent out with a mission from Jesus. It is the same mission that Jesus was sent out on, to make disciples who make disciples, to bring the good news of the kingdom of God, to bring the message of salvation to people here in La Junta, in the United States, and ultimately everyone around the world. And no Christian is exempt from this mission. No Christian. The third thing is this, that the mission is important. It is the same one Christ is on as the sent one from the Father. And know that it is costly. It costs Jesus and the disciples their lives. It costs them relationships. It costs them everything. It takes a commitment of self-sacrifice. It takes obedience and trust in a God who doesn't lie and keeps his promises. It takes great faith. Faith that comes from the giving of the Holy Spirit into our lives that transform us from death into life. So, do you know what your purpose is in this mission? Have you gone to Jesus and told him, Lord, I want to be a part of your mission. I want to be obedient to your call. I am willing to go anywhere and do anything for you, even if it cost you everything, even if it cost you your life. Did you know that even in our small church here at Calvary, we have many people who have been obedient to the call of Christ to go? 
to go not just down the street, but to go to a place that they had never been, to a people they didn't know, to a culture that they were unfamiliar with. Sherry and I came from Denver, which is no small task because, as Sherry will tell you, she was pretty comfortable in her life's bubble, and she wasn't really willing to leave it. And when she wanted to move to La Junta, I finally knew that this was God's call on our life because she finally said yes. When she said no, just so you know, that was God's will. It proved out long ago. So I appreciate that. And then Matt and Betsy, a very similar story. When Matt first approached with coming to La Junta and via a text, he tossed his phone and said, no way, I'm not going there. But God said, oh yeah, way. And he and Betsy are here. Now, he could tell that story better than I just did, so you ask him and Betsy how they got here. Dennis and Meg McDaniel, who are preaching in Lamar today, they came here with their family from Louisville, Kentucky, a culture that couldn't be more different from Los Animas if you tried. But they are here, planting a church in Los Animas. And Dennis and Megan, they also spent time in Haiti. And Dennis has been to many other places, including China. Davina, who's here, in the back right there, has served in China. She served in China for three years. You may not have known that about her. Ask her about it sometime. Ian and Haley McIntyre serve in Southeast Asia. They are here for the summer before they return in August. Get to know them. Ask them what it's like to live there and how we can go and visit there and support them. Today they're at Calvary Wellspring, but they will be around all summer until they go back in August. Maybe some of you have served as missionaries in other places, maybe in the U.S. or overseas. I know Jeannie works with, uh, she works with Operation Christmas Child here in the Valley. And Hannah was a prayer missionary in Florida. We talked about that earlier. What an amazing ministry that was. So if you are a follower of Christ, that means that you are a follower of Christ. And that means that you have to follow him wherever he calls you, to open up your mind and your heart to whatever God wants you to do. He might want you to be a pastor. He might want you to serve in Africa or Asia or Europe or the Middle East. Or as my friends Ted and Kate Mole in Siberia. Yeah, Siberia, think of that. They sent me pictures of temperatures minus 65 degrees Fahrenheit in the middle of winter. They could never get their house over zero, even with the heat, which was basically an open fire. Or now they serve in Alaska. He might want you to serve as a church planter. He might want you to go to seminary to prepare for ministry at Tenet, where I am a student. You need to be ready for whatever he calls you to do. You need to be willing to go. You need to count the cost. But let me tell you, if you pay the cost, if you trust in him, and you do as he calls you to do, the joy is so much greater than the cost that you will pay. And if it does require your life, we're Christians. We're going to go to heaven. There is nothing to fear. We have the peace of Christ and the knowledge of his promise that we will be with him for eternity. How great is that? So I say, let's go. Let's go. 
Wouldn't it be great if we sent everyone in this church out and Matt and I were preaching to ourselves? Honestly, you think, well, why would you want that? That would be the greatest thing that we could ever experience is if you all went somewhere else and preached the gospel to people who were lost. If your heart was like William Carey's and you loved the lost and you gave your life, you gave everything, you gave up everything to do that. Now, he doesn't call everyone to lead. You might be called to stay in La Junta, but you are called to a mission. And our mission here is to reach the valley with the gospel of Christ. I want to leave you with this one quote from William Carey, who we talked about at first. He said this, and I want this to be words that you remember and you pray and you say to yourselves day after day after day. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. We thank you, God, for the call that you've placed on our lives. Father God, I pray that we would be obedient to whatever it is that you call us to do, to wherever it is that you call us to go. Lord, that we will count the cost, and even if it counts, if it costs our very lives, Lord, I pray that we would be obedient. Lord, we know that you do not lie. That is the foundational truth of who you are. You are good, and you do not lie. And you want us to be your witnesses, Lord. You want us to go and make disciples of all nations. You want us to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father God, we trust that you are bringing your people to us. As we go, Lord, grant us success. Grant us your peace, Lord. I pray that if there is someone here today who is living in fear and does not know your peace, does not know you as Lord and Savior, I pray, God, that they would give themselves to you this morning. Lord God Almighty, thank you again for the promise of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.